Well, good morning. Come on in and have a seat. Good morning, everyone. What an amazing day this is. So I just got a couple of announcements, and then we'll open in prayer. Uh, a couple of announcements. Uh, we are coming to Thanksgiving week. I cannot believe that we got Thanksgiving coming up this week, which is a little crazy. Yes, I'm getting... I'm sure they're working on it. So, uh, so we have Thanksgiving coming up this week. We're looking forward to having you here with us next Sunday. But next Sunday, we will not be doing Sunday school. Uh, we don't normally have Sunday school on Thanksgiving Sunday, so we won't be doing that. And we will have no youth meeting. Uh, the youth group has been uh, thriving, but there won't be any youth group meeting this Wednesday due to Thanksgiving. You don't want to hear me once. <laughs> Why would you want to hear me twice? Uh, should I go without the mic? No, keep going? Okay, no big deal. I'm just going to keep going. Keep going. There we go. Let me read for you our um, message for today from our Thanksgiving. And it says this. Give thanks when we have hope, even in death. It says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. For when, since we believed that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Christ, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. You know, uh, for us, one of the greatest fears that we have is the fear of death. And what we can find in the fact that Christ lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended, is the fact that we can have comfort, even when we take our last breath, that he is in complete and total control. So I pray that you would worship him in that. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, I, I pray right now for your kind grace and your mercy. Father, I thank you for the fact that we have hope in the midst of all the struggles and all the pains and all the trials of life. Father, even as I was thinking of Psalm 59 um, today, Father, I, David is struggling because people are ensnarling around him and coming around him to camp around him to attack him. And he was able to focus his vision on you, that you were his strength, his refuge, his hope. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that as well. Lord, I pray for um, Michelle Adams as she's listed a request here for Jake's father-in-law. He's in ICU right now with COVID and pneumonia, Lord. Uh, he's on a ventilator right now. We pray for comfort right now. I pray for wisdom for the doctors. I think, thank you that there is so many more tools that they have today to deal with COVID, so much more wisdom in how they deal with it. So, Lord, I pray for him right now. Rachel brings the request about Gary Hoyt, Lord, and his diagnosis recently, Father, multiple melanoma, Father. I pray for him. I pray for this family, Father, through the struggles that they've been going through. Lord, I pray comfort upon him. I pray for wisdom again for the doctors. I pray for healing. Lord, Fran brought a request for Darlene um, and her son. And, Lord, I pray that he has been diagnosed with cancer. Cancer has been coming through so many people that we know and love. Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom as well. And for Diana Kelly, we continue to pray for her, for Victor and for the family. 
Lord, I pray that you would remind us that you are our refuge, our strength, our very present help in troubles. So today, as we begin this worship service, Father, help us to begin anew with a vision of who you are and whose we are. In Jesus' name we are. Amen. Good morning. Please rise and worship with us this morning. Christ. 
creatures. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise of your love maker of the universe broken for the sins of the earth all because of your love all because of your love because of your cross 
debt is paid because of your blood my sins are washed away now all of my life i freely give because of your love because of your we live we have relationship with you and God in that we have community here in this church God thank you so much for this church this local church that we get to just partake in our love of you our adoration of you and uh, God this morning I just ask that you would uh, bless PT as he brings the message that you would open our hearts to receive exactly what you would have for us this morning and be changed by it and we praise in Christ's name amen I want you to turn in your Bibles to the uh, book of Ephesians, chapter 2. 
And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 22. So Ephesians 2, 11 through verse 22. So let's start reading there this morning. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, that which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, And without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we pray that your word will be clear to us today. And God, that its intended purpose would be accomplished as it is preached, because that is our calling as pastors, to preach the word. We pray that your spirit will enable our hearing so that we may be truly changed by the truth of your word today. God, we long for your spirit to open our eyes to something new today about the glory of Christ. That will change us and perhaps even change someone's life today forever. We pray these blessings in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know uh, if you can remember the last time that you felt awkward. Um, The awkwardness of being an outsider. That is being at an event where everybody seems to know each other. And you feel like you don't know anybody. I was at a wedding recently for a young lady that we, my wife and I, love and uh, just have a lot of respect for her. Uh, There were probably a hundred people at the wedding. Um, I've lived here for 32 years. And I'm not used to being at a local event where I, like I'm looking around because you kind of know as you're you're doing the hors d'oeuvres the after the wedding ceremony is done you're doing the hangout time and everybody's talking and I'm said to my wife I said I think I only know the immediate family who are quite busy because it's their wedding day 
And there was just that, you know, you know that feeling you get? Like, you feel like you might be invisible, right? And so we're sitting at this little table, and no one's talking to us. And, and truth be told, we're not talking to anybody except ourselves, right? And you start to get this distinct feeling of being like an alien, okay? And it's just, it, it, it's a bit awkward. It reminds me of when I go to my wife's uh, high school reunions, which I'm not, I told her, I said, no more. I can't, I can't. <laughs> I feel so awkward in that setting. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty social. I can en- engage with people in conversation. Well, it turned out at, at this wedding, we were seated. At, when the pastor did the wedding ceremony, I thought, he sounds like we're on the same page. Like, he, he's, he's sharing truth about Jesus. Well, it turned out that we ended up being seated at the table with him. And then right across from me is this lovely young lady in the third row, uh, Shelly, okay, and all of a sudden I realized, okay, it, it, and here's what happened. Once that bond, that relationship was established with her and Keith, her husband, and with the pastor and his wife, all of a sudden, guess what? My awkwardness totally evaporated, okay? Now, that feeling of being an outsider is something that the text that we look at to the, that at today describes and addresses, okay? It's one thing to feel awkward like we felt that day. It is a different thing to feel hated and willfully ostracized. I did not feel that way that day. I just felt awkward because I didn't know anybody. But there are settings in which that idea of hostility and brokenness in relationship is very strong and palpable. That was true in the ancient world. Awkwardness or hostility in the, in the ancient world was accepted and it was institutionalized. That was the world in which the early church was birthed, a world with animosity and deep cultural divisions. And I, as I wrote that, I said, boy, I'm glad ours isn't that way. And then I smiled. We're just a bit more sophisticated and civil in our, in our approach, but we certainly have our own issues. A little time on social media will remove all doubt about the absence of hostility in our culture. This hostility in the ancient world was especially poignant or pointed when you started to uncover the relationship between Jews and the rest of the world. The Jews had a way of referring to the entire world population. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And in the mind of a a religious Jew... Okay, an observant Jew in the ancient world, there were two kinds of people. People that had the possibility of of relationship with God and people that had no hope of a relationship with God. And so that was a very stifling and discouraging uh, fact of the ancient world. Some of the Jews had concluded that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. Because pride will always take you to an ugly place. Okay? Now, I want you to keep in mind, it was the, the, the elite, pharisaical, established, deeply rooted in Judaism people that had that kind of perspective. There was an elitism that saw all others as outsiders. You know, it's interesting in our world, some accuse others of being unenlightened or having careless cultural tendencies, thinking that, or thinking that my political persuasions make me essentially better than others. 
Such deep divides are nothing new. They are, in fact, our story. It is the human story. In our pride, we tend to develop hostilities and divisions and, and, and break people into groups. It's a natural tendency. But I want you to know this morning that the gospel of Christ aims to change all of that. That in, the, in, in the, 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 the body of Christ that is called the church, God, by the gospel, destroys all of those kinds of barriers and calls us together to live as one body, as one, as what this text says, one new humanity that God is creating through the work of Jesus. Now, as Paul writes here, he is writing as, as a means of giving a reminder to the believers in Ephesus. So beginning of verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that you formerly were Gentiles by birth. And you go to verse 12, he says, Remember at that time you were separate from Christ. So he's writing to this newly formed church. He wants them to remember their former state, division, hostility. And he wants them to become more conscious of and thankful for the new position that they have in Christ. And with that new position in Christ comes a new set of affections and a new set of responsibilities. The world, in the context of the church, is to be miraculously different than the world in which we live. Okay? So, so there is this issue of hostility. And Paul's going to address this in three ways. First, he's going to talk about the problem of hostility. Then he's going to talk about the solution to that hostility. How it, how, how does it melt? How does it go away? And the new humanity emerges, the church. How does that happen? And the last thing he's going to talk about is the astonishing potential of this new humanity. Okay, so the problem and then the solution in Christ and then the new potential of the body of Christ. So let's look first at the problem of hostility. For these people, it was a problem that was present in their past. Paul writes so that they would never forget that. So verse 11 begins, remember that formerly, that is in your past, you who were Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. So there you start to get this, the tension starts to become a little sensitive. You can start to feel the tension, all right? You're the, you're, you have Gentiles by birth who are called uncircumcision. They're called that by the circumcision, that which is done in the human body. So what was circumcision? Because what you have is you have a group of people that are insiders, the Jewish people, and then you have the outsiders that are Gentiles, and Paul's kind of addressing the tension that exists between them. So the question is, what was this circumcision then? All right, circumcision was an external sign in the ancient world that you belong to the people of God, that is the Jewish people. So when you see the word circumcision, you want to be thinking people of God. And when you see the word uncircumcision, you're thinking unclean or not people of God. Okay, so that was the, the, the divide that was present culturally in the ancient world. Circumcision being this, it is the sum or sign of the whole law that was given to the nation of Israel, and it became their identity that set them apart from other 
people. All right, their calling from God in the Old Testament is clearly this. It is a privilege based upon love, not based upon performance. Okay, so you read through the Old Testament and you, you search for why did God choose the nation of Israel? <clears throat> the answer that you will find, the only answer you will find is that God loved them. Okay, he set his affection on them so that they could be used by God for a very distinct and beautiful purpose. What did Israel do with that sense of selection by God? How did it affect them internally in their heart? And here's the answer. They allowed their privilege, chosen by God's love, to become a cause for pride. Their blessing became a right, something that they could demand. And that incited hostility towards non-Jewish people or the uncircumcised in this text. Okay? When it should have prompted humility... All right, and this is something I think we as Christians always need to be conscious of. The only reason that I live with hope of eternity with God is not rooted in my efforts. It's rooted in the grace of God that has been been abundantly made clear for me through the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that choosing of God of the nation of Israel should have humbled them. Instead, what did it do to the human heart? In many cases, it prompted a sense of pride that led to looking down at others. That looking down at others created a sense of hostility and division between people. Brokenness. Now, it's interesting at the end of verse 11 that there is this parenthetical statement, right? So Paul says, They were called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Now, here's what happens. When they said we are the circumcision, what they were really saying is, by virtue of bearing an external sign, we are the people of God. And I use the word the to distinguish between them and others. That's the way that Judaism in its brokenness, in its disintegration started to see itself. No longer were they people related to God by love and grace. They were people related to God by virtue of their performance and the fact that they had an external sign that made them distinct from the rest of the world. And so Paul says, you recall that by the circumcision, the alleged people of God, and then he in parentheses says this, which is done in the body by human hands. Okay, meaning that status of circumcision was not a circumcision or cleansing of the heart. It was now merely the result of human effort done by hand. Here's the interesting twist. When God critiqued the ancient nations for their paganism and making idols, he always called their idols handmade. Okay? Meaning they they were gods that they had made. And in this setting, that external sign that God had given to Israel to mark them off had become merely a a hand-done thing with no true blessing from God in it. So as you move through the rest of the Old Testament, you'll find that God starts to say to Israel, not everyone that is circumcised that has the external sign of blessing is actually part of God's people. 
Okay, so that's why when you read through this, some of this you'll see the uncircumcised and the circumcised is in quotes so that you start to see this distinguishing of two groups of people. One set apart by pride. Paul then says at the beginning of verse 11, he says, you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision, okay, meaning called without God, it, it to, to call them the uncircumcised and to use the word called was to put them in their place. Okay, it was a way that the nation of Israel exhibited their spiritual pride, which ultimately is abhorrent to God and divisive amongst humanity. Okay, so the insiders of the Jews in this analogy and the outsiders of the Gentiles. And this idea of being called uncircumcised was a derisive and degrading statement. If you remember when David was saying that he was willing to go fight Goliath the Philistine, what does he call him? Do you remember what he calls him? He says, I'll go out and I'll take care of this uncircumcised Philistine, right? It's interesting. So it was a way that the people of God and those that were opposed to the people of God in that setting understood that crowd, okay? So it's a a very, very interesting statement. So when the Jews were calling Gentiles at the time of Christ uncircumcised, they were basically denigrating or degrading their humanity, They were putting them into a category of hopelessness. And that's what hostility and division always does. When I separate from people, when I distinguish between people based on externals, based on things that are not really at the core of who we are, color of skin, education, financial status, when I divide in that kind of a way, I'm falling into the same trap. I am fueling hostility by my pride. I'm fueling division. Breaks, fractures in the culture. And the result of that is always devastating. So here's the question of the Old Testament. And, 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 and verse 12 kind of, kind of lays this out. He, Paul talks about the, the place of Gentiles prior to coming to Christ. He says, remember at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel. And in that case, I think Paul's saying excluded from the true people of God, not the proud people of God, not the circumcision as a party, but the true people of God, that these Gentiles that didn't know the gospel were separate from Christ. They were excluded from Israel. They were foreigners to the covenants of promise without God and without hope in the world. So that last phrase really tries to, I think, capture the other statements that are made. Okay, so those those four or five statements are made, but it's kind of captured in this category at the end of the day, without hope and without God. That feeling of without hope and without God was emphasized by the sinful and divisive behavior of the circumcision party. It was reinforced. So prior to hearing about Christ, how did the people in Ephesus feel? They felt alienated from God. They felt that they did not have hope because they knew who they really were. And so Paul 
writes to them, first of all, to remind them of the problem of hostility. The hostility of Judaism towards Gentiles caused Gentiles to feel that they were hopeless. And here's the question of the Old Testament. God calls the nation of Israel to be his people. To be the nation through, or through which the world would know God. Okay? So if you go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, here's what God says. God says, I will make you, Israel, a light for the Gentiles. You see that? I will make you, Israel. I marked you off as my people so that through you, truth about God could be made known to the world for their hope and saving. But what did Israel do? They took the oracles of God and thought of themselves as privileged. That privileged feeling led to pride. That pride built a wall of hostility. There is us and there is you. And pity those on the other side of the wall. Do you see? So that sense of pride that emerges in our hearts at times always ends up building a wall of hostility that separates and fractures relationships. May God help us to never cross into that kind of thinking. See, Gentiles, people like us, were to find truth about God and hope through the witness of the nation of Israel. So God had made them a light for the Gentiles, Isaiah 49, 6 says, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isn't that fascinating? God chose Israel to be a funnel into which he would pour his mercy and grace and truth about himself and ultimately about the Messiah because Jesus comes through the nation of Israel. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well who is a definite outsider because of her moral status, he says to her, salvation is from the Jews. What does he mean? The Messiah The liberating king comes through the nation of Israel for the saving, not of Israel, but for the saving of the world. And so God makes it clear in Isaiah 49, I chose you and I made you a light so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So that God's aim in the gospel was always multinational. It was never to make Israel special and exclusive. It was to make Israel a megaphone for the grace of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And that intention of a multinational makeup of the people of God is present all the way back at the calling of the nation of Israel. And this is what's fascinating to me. Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2, God calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, in you, listen to this, in you, the father of Israel, the founder, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Folks, that blessing that goes to all nations, that call of Christ to be taking the gospel of Jesus to all nations, That picture in the book of Revelation chapter 5, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation was always the intention of God for his chosen people. That he would give to them privileges and benefits, not rewards, but benefits and blessings so that they could take those blessings and make them known to the world. But pride always stifles our outreach to our community. 
Right? It always does that. It always breaks down the desire to help others because we're always looking for reasons why they're in their situation than, seek, than rather seeking to help them get out of their situation. We differentiate. Instead of let, causing ourselves by the power of the Spirit of God to realize that if I am in Christ, I am in Christ by the grace of God. I have been forgiven and set free. My life has been changed because of divine intervention. The cross rightly understood will always silence boasting and dismantle hostility. Because my efforts at the end of the day, my handmade, my human work is useless. Religion, in this case Judaism, offers no hope to self-conscious sinners. Only judgment and hostility. But I want you to know this morning that the blood of Christ offers hope to you in spite of who you are. In spite of what you've done, it does not differentiate. It offers hope to the world. So the problem of hostility is clearly seen in this Jew-Gentile circumcision, uncircumcision, calling them that, marking them off as without Christ, outside of the hope of Israel, therefore hopeless. How does this text address the solution to hostility? So I have the problem. How is that hostility Resolved. Now, verse 14 is a very beautiful verse. If the problem is hostility, the need is peace. Verse 14, it says, For he himself, Jesus, that is, is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So what is the, what is the answer to division in the ancient world between Jews and Gentiles, those two groups that made up the entire population of the world. What's the answer? The answer is found in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to unite, Paul says here, he comes to unite historically hostile parties. Now, if you and I lived in the ancient world and there was this mindset amongst the elite Jewish population that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell, there was no desire to make a difference in the lives of people that were considered outsiders. No desire whatsoever. So when Christ comes and he is, when he is building this new thing called the church, this new body, this new community, when he starts to build that, and in that, in Ephesus, which Paul is writing to, that church is made up of Jew and Gentile. That in the ancient world, flat out, was a miracle of God's grace. Why? The hostility was so entrenched and so deep. The hatred and resentment of those that had been set aside was strong and the hostility of those that felt better than others was equally strong. And so there was the, this hostility was constantly fed by pride that rejected, made the rejected feel resentment. Okay? And that's pretty typical pattern in life relationships. How do you resolve that? How is that brokenness healed? And this text makes it very clear that Christ has made the two groups one, these hostile enemies. He has them seated at his table, enjoying life together. How did he do it? He has destroyed the barrier, 
the dividing wall of hostility. And so I've said this. The hostility is fueled by pride. I feel better than you, therefore I'm hostile towards you. I keep my distance from you. I won't get involved in your life. I won't help you. That was the ancient world between Jews and Gentiles. The wall in context here is interesting. Because the wall could either be literal or it could be the division that rises between people as a result of pride. Okay, if you're familiar with the temple at the time of Christ, you know that there were Jewish courts and Gentile courts. And there was a literal wall, if you will, a fence that marked out the places where Gentiles considered the unclean, uncircumcised, not the people of God, where they had to stay. And that the purpose of that wall, which on it had signs, this is what, what, what ancient, what archaeology has discovered. There were signs on that wall that contained threats for anybody that would transgress that line, that would try to go from being an outsider to being an insider. Isn't that amazing? So there's this literal wall, and that wall was erected by what? It was erected by a failure to see that God had called Israel to be a light to the nations. Because otherwise, how would you ever erect such a wall? So the wall in this context that Christ is destroying could be the literal wall. I think he's really talking about what that wall figuratively represented in terms of the hearts of the hostile. Okay? That that wall was emblematic. It was symbolic of the deep brokenness and the deep hostility and pride that had infected the heart of the religious community of that day. And when Christ comes on the scene, man, he, he has an aim. His aim is to tear down that wall that separates, that divides, that keeps ungodly hostilities alive and well and brings devastation and destruction folks that's always what happens when my pride enters in always the gospel aims to humble me there's no room for pride when i'm rightly understanding the cross work of christ so the solution to the hostility is a person it's jesus how does he achieve peace look at verses 15 and 16 So it says he has divided the wall of hostility. He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How does he do it? Verse 15. By setting aside, listen, in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. That is the entirety of it. His purpose to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. And the idea in the ancient world would have been good luck with that. Because the hostilities are deep. You know, we have an illustration of that in our day, don't we? In Palestine, the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Who really thinks the peace is ever going to be established when the hostilities are so strong and the wall is so high? Right? It, it, everything that's signed, every peace treaty that's signed in that situation is always subject to change and failure because we know that the hostility is so deep. How could you possibly break it? How could you possibly destroy it? How is this peace achieved? The answer is, I'll I'll just say this out front. Paul's going to say that hostility is destroyed. That wall is torn down by the work of the cross of Christ. And and I'll I'll get to why that's the case. The root issue for the Jews 
was amplified by their law-keeping. Okay, we do this, we do this. Remember, just, just, just minute attention to the law was, was very strong and very present. So their pride was driven by law-keeping, but the purpose of the law, the Old Testament and New Testament both tell us, is to show me that I'm a sinner. Okay, so how can the law that was given to show me my sinfulness become a cause for pride in my performance. Do you see? Paul says the law was given to point us to Christ, meaning every time I try to keep the law in its entirety, in the fullness and heart of it, what do I find out about myself? I find out I'm a sinner. Have you ever lied? Ask yourself that question. You ever lied? What does that make you? A liar. You ever stolen? I, I, I remember, Jake, I think when I was talking to you, you and I had this conversation with your boss sitting right behind you now, okay? I remember saying to Jake, we were driving along in the car March four years ago. I said, Jake, have you ever stolen? He goes, no. Ever going home early from work? Like, has that ever happened? I said, don't answer because I know his boss, so I didn't want him to answer. So we're not going to answer the question. But if, I, if I've stolen, what does that make me? Makes me a thief. What was Israel doing? They, 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 they kind of modified and domesticated the law to make it keepable. And when they made it keepable, what did it do? It gave them a sense of pride, of, 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 of religious airs about them, that they were better than others. Therefore, they could treat them in that way. Because really, the question that comes to your mind when you see people mistreated is, how does someone get to the place? How do I get to the place? Where I can treat my mate in a way that is so demeaning. Okay? How can I be critical at times in such a hurtful way? Well, the only answer can be is that I just think I'm better than her. her. Does that make sense? It, it's the only thing that can unleash that kind of hostility, that kind of cutting down okay is that there are times in my relationships that i just i feel like i've been doing better and sometimes it can free in me in my betterness it can free an ugliness of hostility probably all of us i hope can see that the purpose of the law was to show how badly israel needed a savior the old testament story is punctuated with violations of God's law and sacrifice of lambs for atonement. Each sacrifice was repeated because that blood could never wash away sin. But each sacrifice also anticipated the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see? God gave Israel a system. He gave them laws. When you break the laws, there's a way back into fellowship with God. It's through the sacrifice of the lamb. And every lamb sacrificed anticipated the lamb of God that John would say takes away the sin of the world. After keeping the law perfectly in his flesh, in his body, Jesus bears the consequences of my sin. All that the laws and regulations anticipated is fulfilled is completed, is bound up in the person and work of Christ. So the law that condemned me actually is 
satisfied in the work of Christ so that I can be set free from my sin. So verse 16 says this. It says, in one body, he came to reconcile both of them, Jew and Gentile. Paul, as a Jew, sees himself in this category of sinfulness and finding hope in the person of Christ. In his body, Jesus reconciles both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. It's interesting, isn't it? That, that hostility, that vitriol, that hatred towards people that are different is in fact dealt with on the cross of Christ. How does that happen? Our hostility falls on him, which is why Galatians says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The person who hangs on a cross is about to experience judgment and justice. That's what Christ endured for me. He is broken so that I could be healed. He becomes an ultimate outsider so that I could be brought near and be an insider. This is a divine beauty of the cross of Christ. He is forsaken and I am accepted. He dies so I can live. The hostility that I deserve falls on him. And by his resurrection, he destroys the power of sin decisively. And we are freed from its penalty by faith. What a Savior. What a Savior. His death makes a way to God for all repentant sinners. And when I understand that, what happens? Boasting fades. Hostility deprived of the oxygen that it needs to survive. Because The aim of God's law and the aim of the gospel is to create a new humanity in which everybody knows that we have one thing in common, and that is that we are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, and that we are all prone towards hostile attitudes and actions towards others. But when we see the cross, we realize that our sin debt is paid in full. I remember one of my professors in a a seminar that I was in, he said, there is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. I, I cannot stand in front of the cross of Christ and see him there slain, broken, God forsaken, so that I could become inside free and healed. I cannot stand there as a sinner in need of this Savior and feel any sense of pride, nor can I having experienced his grace poured over me, forgiving me, freeing me, liberating me, taking up residence in me. In no way, when I rightly understand that, can I tolerate any sense of spiritual pride. That is, I am better than you. Not at the foot of the cross. Because at the cross, the hostility that I tend to have towards people that may not be doing as well as I am on a given hour is obliterated by the cross. And really what Paul's saying is this this centuries-old hostility has been challenged by the work of Jesus Christ at the cross, and it has, in fact, been destroyed. So that, and the result is, 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 is beautiful. Verse 17, watch what happens. He came and preached peace. And the idea of peace here is hope for fullness. 
hope for freedom from hostility. It, 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 it's in the largest and fullest sense, this idea of well-being. Jesus came and preached peace to those that were far and to those who were near. Which means what? His message of hope was for who? It was for the Jewish establishment, the circumcision, that had begun to see its place as privilege and had fallen into the center of pride and had built walls of hostility. And it was for Gentiles who felt hopeless because they were genuinely aware of their sin because the Jews made sure they knew every time they failed. Okay? So we have this common standing. Okay? And the cross of Christ aims to address that. He came to preach peace to those that are outside and those that are inside in their thinking. Jesus' ministry anticipates this, I think, in such a beautiful way. Because when you, when, when you look at, at, at the ministry of Christ, what you see is that he's preaching to people of all kinds. And his preaching to people of all kinds and all kinds of circumstances, outsiders, insiders, you, you, you start to understand that his, his calling, his mission is global in its reach. It obliterates, it annihilates all hostility. So that at the end of the day, here's what Paul says. Through him, and I want you to see this, through him, we both. Okay, so who is the we both in context? The we both is Jews and Gentiles, insiders and outsiders. In Christ, by virtue of his work on the cross, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, here's what's really cool about this text. When Christ comes, he does not come primarily to resolve Tim Hoff's issues with Doug Finkbeiner. The main issue that he came to resolve is the issue between Tim Hoff and God himself. But here's what happens, okay? When Paul's trying to argue for unity in the church and, 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 and never forget how broken you were and how in Christ you're, you, Jew and Gentile, are worshiping together in this new body. When he talks about that, he never, he never wants them to forget that the basis or the ground of their relationship with God being made right also affects what? It affects their relationships with each other. So my problems in my marriage cannot be addressed simply by looking at my relationship with my wife. They first need to be addressed by looking at my relationship with God. Do you see? So Paul, that's why Paul says, he says, Through him, we both have access to the Father. And what does that do? That new forgiveness, that absence of hostility with God begins to leak down into how we relate to each other. And that is the beauty and glory of the gospel. That's the beauty of the solution to the problem of hostility. That in Christ, outsiders are brought in here. And insiders are brought in here. To God by the work of His Spirit. Here's what I want to say to you in application of that thought. Don't let anyone tell you that you are beyond hope, that you're so far outside that the chasm cannot be crossed. 
Understand that through the work of Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross, he died for religious people and irreligious people. He died for people that are good and that are bad. And there is no one outside of the reach and scope of God's amazing grace. Verse 19 concludes this text very beautifully. The glorious potential of the people of God. He says, consequently, we are no longer strangers and aliens. I want you to notice how he says it. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews in the church, or to the Gentiles in the church in Ephesus, that in the new community that God has created, this new humanity, this new family, there is no distinction. There is no justification for distinction. There's no need for distinction because we all come in the same thing, sinners, and we all find hope through the same thing, the blood of Christ on Calvary's cross. That's where our forgiveness is found. Paul says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. There are no insiders and outsiders, but instead, and then he gives three quick snapshots of the potential of what we can be in Christ. He says, first, you are fellow citizens. I mean, for the, for the believing Jew, this had to be such a, such a warp, such a, such a, a, a warp for them to, to begin to grasp and understand that this Gentile, uncircumcised, sitting by the in church is equally part of the same kingdom that I'm in. It, had, it, it was a rub, and that's why Paul writes and explains this over and over, because that divide was so devastating to what the church was intended to be, God's light to the world. So he says, there are no longer outsiders. Everybody's included. There are no visitors. There should be no sense of awkwardness. Because we all find our standing with God through the work of Christ. Remember coming back from India the first time I went, and that, that trip was tough. Exhausted, could not wait to get home. I remember going to the immigration counter. And we're there reviewing your stuff and you're signing off on what you did bring and didn't bring and all that kind of stuff. And when the guy's done, he stamps it like you're good to enter in. And he says to me, he says, welcome home. I will tell you that in India, I felt like a fish out of water completely. Okay, it was, it was a difficult, exhausting trip. Uh, Lots of concerns. We're up in the northern part where things are, are get really dicey in Patna. There's no police force. When I get home, I, everything about America that I love, and, I, and I, I don't love everything about my country, I'm very gladly an American citizen. It doesn't mean I think we're perfect, okay, because none of us are. Therefore, the nation that we're part of can't be, okay? We have our flaws. We've made our mistakes. But I, there was just a sense of... You say that again? Because this is where I'm from. This is where I'm protected. This is where I feel comfortable. We're, that's the church. All different kinds of people drawn together by the sovereign grace of God, cleansed by the blood of Christ, a new community, a new nation that God is building. That's how he sees the church. And then he says of the church, it is a family. Verse 19, watch what he says. We are fellow citizens with God's people. Meaning there is no circumcision and uncircumcision. We are all God's people. And also members of his household. 
It's interesting. Your family is filled with people you didn't choose. Your family has people in it that are given to you. There are people that you are stuck with that love you with your flaws. A family in which you have equal benefits and equal responsibility by virtue of relationship. Okay, that's what family is. And with my family, I can be my quirky, annoying self. And they still love me. That's what family is. Family isn't perfection. When God says the church is a family, he, he aims, Paul aims to evoke all of the appropriate emotions and hopes that, for instance, this week, going into Thanksgiving, being together with people that you know and love deeply. Because at the end of the day, we're permanently together. And that picture for Paul aims to to evoke this this sense of equal benefit in the relationship, not homeless anymore. Fellow heirs. And in that relationship, Jesus says this, I am not ashamed to be called your brother. Hebrews 2. That should blow your mind. You and I become part of the family of God. And in that family, our relationship with Jesus, and I think this is primarily in terms of at the human level, he is our brother. Though he is our God, such humility, such devastation of hostility, such destruction and annihilation of hostility. We're a new nation. We're a new family. And verses 20 and 21 say this, we are a new temple. We are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that is the proclamation of the word of God to the early church. Okay, that's what was going on. You'll see it in Ephesians 3, 5. You'll see it in 1 Corinthians. There was this, their goal was to make Jesus known clearly and in a saving and life-changing way. He says, we are built on this foundation of of the proclamation of Christ with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. That is the stone in the foundation, the first one set, that orients the rest of the structure. Christ and the gospel, that hope of forgiveness for all sinners who trust and believe in Christ, is foundational to what we are. And, And we need to think about that. So that we treat each other fairly with appropriate expectations. We are God's temple. We are his building. And you notice how these things build with intensity. You have a citizenry that's somewhat loose. You have a family that's somewhat tight. And then you get into buildings where stones are mortared together. Okay, so there is this increasing idea of the closeness and proximity with Christ central and foundational to it. Christ who shed his blood, Christ who died on Calvary's cross to destroy the hostility, is building a new community, the church, made of Jew and Gentile in Ephesus, and that is a bona fide miracle in the ancient world. Because they were groups that known for their hostility, but in Christ they are known for their love and affection. Verse 21 says, In him the whole building is joined together and is, I love this, it is rising to become a holy temple in and for the Lord. You know what that tells me? It, it, it is being put together by God 
It is rising in the power of God. It is filled by the Spirit of God so that we are a miraculous and supernatural group of people that God is building to be a light to the nations. Why Jesus said to the church, Matthew 5, the early church, he said to them, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill gleaming cannot be hidden. You can't obscure it. Folks, do you understand the incredible potential that we have as the people of God? To show the world around us what true love looks like. What the destruction of hostility looks like. When people from all different backgrounds and all different statuses and all different education and different races come together There is a beauty that this world is longing to see, but seldom sees. Where can they see it? In the church of Christ. Verse 22, he says this. And in him, you two are being built together. Now listen, you are, that's, we are objects that God is pushing together. He's making something out of us. You're being built together by God. To me, that is simply a picture of hope. And it's fascinating because in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple were places where God made himself known. Where does God make himself known today? In his temple. The church. Which should put into check how I live. It should deeply affect my thinking and how I relate to others. In him you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What an amazing and beautiful picture. That when we are together, the spirit of God is present. And he is working and he is is changing us and he is glorifying himself. As we come together and we surrender ourselves to the work of the Spirit and and, and we, we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the bond that Christ provides. By the Spirit, we maintain that. It's not natural for me to want to get along in the way that I should with others, but the Spirit of God is prompting that unity. He's miraculously showing me where my sin and my brokenness is evident so that I can change by the power that He brings. He's filling us. As a result, the church should be the dearest place on earth. It should be the most humble and welcoming community in the world, bar none. And we do this as people of hope because if God is for us, who can be against us? Here's what Jesus said. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is for you. He's destroyed the hostility between you and others through the cross. And when you keep the cross central, hostility fades. Pride fades. And he's drawing you into something beautiful. Our true potential can only be reached, I believe, based on verse 22, when we live in conscious surrender to to the Holy Spirit who gifts us and strengthens us and guides us to be the light that God longs for us to be and the light that the world around us desperately needs to see. So may God help us by the blood of Christ, by the cross of Christ, to kill hostility, to deprive it of the oxygen that it needs to survive. 
by finding pride in me, killed. By finding humility, rising. Because the key to unity in any group of people, in a marriage, the key to unity between parents and children is humility. And the thing that will destroy that community is pride. May God help us to be the church, to be the dearest place on earth. I close with this simple story from when I went to uh, India, Indonesia, and Colombia. I was struck by the depth of joy and relationship with people that I could not communicate with in language. Okay? I did not speak their language. Spanish, Hindi, and I don't know what they speak in Indonesia. I know one word, makasi, which means blessing. Okay? But I remember a, the, the sense of family, the sense of community that was enjoyed when we would sing together and when we would have the privilege through an interpreter of sharing the gospel of Christ and they would come up and express their appreciation for what they had learned or what they had heard or simply for the fact, and this is what blew me away the most, you came. You came. You cared enough to make that trip to come and be with, and they knew what was entailed. They knew it wasn't an easy place to be. Colombia, same thing. Indonesia, Pastor Ahiham. Pastors a church in the shadow of a mosque. Has a baptism pool under his kitchen table. Where they bring people in secretly to be baptized. For fear of the consequences. This guy had a seven-year-old daughter who was severely disabled. He took Victor John, our missionary to India, up and I up into the bedroom to see his daughter. Victor's like, I have never. He said, I didn't even know this daughter existed. But because of the bond that he felt in Christ, he wanted us to know that we could pray for his little girl with debilitating sickness for life. When we left there, he... Honor in the Asian culture is so high. It's so high. And the desire to do something. He, he got these little washcloths, what he could afford. And he put his name, Ahiang. On the bottom corner, he put Tim Hof. And that, I had that cloth. That cloth was simply his way of saying that we're on the same I mean, for lack of a better word, we're on the same towel, okay? But what he was really saying is we're, we're bound together. And it, it was the only way that he, in a, in a personalized fashion with our names, could express what was in his heart. It, I mean, sometimes silly things can make me cry, okay? That, like, blew me out of the water. Because I knew what he was saying. We're in Jesus. We're citizens of the same country. We belong to the same family. And we represent the same God as his temple. And let that sense of peace that Jesus came to preach permeate your life.
Let it go from here into your home, into your marriage, into your relationship with your kids, into your workplace. Let it deal with the deepest hostility that you know because Christ has given you, forgiven you of something far greater, cosmic rebellion against him. And if I know that there is, there is, when I'm conscious of the cross, there is no room for pride in my life. And therefore, there can't be hostility because pride fuels it. Humility destroys it. And that is what we learn from this text today. Imagine our potential and let's seek it for his glory. If you don't know Christ this morning, if you're not part of his family, I pray that you would understand that it is by the blood of Christ and by the cross of Christ that your hostility, the hostility between you and your God, can be destroyed by simple grace through faithful love. Maybe you cry out to God where you are right now and you say, God, I am a sinner, hostile to you, broken. But I believe that the blood of Christ, the cross work of Christ can forgive me, save me today. Maybe you need to pray that prayer. God, help us as we go from here after we sing our closing song. Help us to go in the power of the cross to make a difference in our world. And God, perhaps as we leave this room to make a difference in our church, to be agents of change and agents of humility and agents of humility destroying any hostility that the evil one erects to destroy us. Help us, God, to stand in the power of your spirit because the cross has changed for us everything. And Jesus, thank you for your willing sacrifice for our saving. We love you. We honor you. And I pray that we will now exalt you through the song that we sing. We pray this in your glorious name and all God's people said, amen.
Because of the fact that you obliterated the hostility, God, we, we all come before the foot of your cross on equal footing. God, I just ask that you would allow that uh, knowledge today and through this week to just permeate our hearts. Help us to be conduits of your grace, for we all come to you because of your grace and nothing that we bring. Um, God, just infect our hearts with that this week, that we may uh, uh, spread your light to the uh, uh, a world that needs it so desperately. So. 
Uh, bless us as we go, and uh, thank you for this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.